and welcome to Maybe Today Matinee, a podcast about all things film before you were born. I'm Monica. I'm David. This month we're watching censored movies, and today we're talking about Howard Hawks' 1932 film, Scarface. Well, I thought we were going to say something of you. Well, here I am. Where have you been? On a vacation? Uh, I've been working. 1920s Chicago is divided into a north and south side, dominated by Irish and Italian gangs, respectively. Tony Camonti kills Louis Castillo, the leading Italian crime boss, and Tony's boss, Johnny Lovo, becomes the new leader of the south side, with Tony as his lieutenant. Though they solidify their hold on the south side, Tony has designs on the north side as well, which Johnny warns him to avoid. Johnny's girlfriend Poppy catches Tony's eye, and in a bid to win her over, as well as overtake Johnny's position, Tony begins raiding bars on the north side. The gangs, of course, deal in illegal beer. Eventually, he has his friend Gino Rinaldo kill O'Hara, the Irish mob boss, leading to retaliation by the Irish with submachine guns, which Tony takes a liking to. He pushes further into the north side, murdering Gaffney, the new leader of the north side. As Tony rises in power, he begins to win over Poppy, to the point where they flirt and dance in front of Johnny at a club. Tony leaves the club suddenly when he finds his sister Cheska there, angry that she is out in public with strange men. After a fight with Cheska back at their home, Tony leaves and is immediately attacked by Johnny's goons, leading to a car chase. Tony, along with Gino, eventually find Johnny in his home, denying that he had anything to do with the attack. They kill him. Tony runs off with Poppy, but when he comes back to Chicago after a month away, the police have begun to circle. He learns from his mother that during his absence, Cheska left the family home with a strange man who he realizes is Gino. He tracks the couple down and shoots Gino dead, only to learn that the two had been married just the night before. Tony hunkers down in his home as he realizes the police are drawing near, and Cheska shows up with a pistol, ready to shoot him over the death of her husband. However, her affection for her brother overcomes her, and she decides to barricade herself inside with him and help him fight off the police. In the process, she is shot dead, and Tony begins to surrender when the police tear gas the house. He tries to escape one last time, but is killed. David, what are your thoughts on this movie? Uh, So this is my second time viewing it. I saw it for the first time about 10 years ago and I remember being distinctly incredibly bored uh so that was kind of my expectation going in and I actually enjoyed it a lot I um I think I appreciated it a lot more this go around than I expected I would this is so funny because we were just talking last time about how you find good in every movie and I just continue to be so impressed by that attitude. <laughs> <laughs> even with movies you previously didn't like that much all right um, let's get into this. <laughs> so first, I want to talk about Howard Hughes. And I think with most movies, we start off talking about the director. But I feel like in this movie, the producer had such a significant role that we're going to address him first. Howard Hughes, of course, was a uh, major businessman, industrialist, tycoon in the early 20th century who got heavily involved in movie production. And he had already produced some gangster movies, and he wanted to make another. So he purchased the rights to 
a novel by Armitage Trail, um, also called Scarface. That novel was based closely on the life story of Al Capone. Hughes went ahead with his idea to make a movie based on this novel, even though he was kind of advised, even though he was kind of advised against it because the genre was so flooded by now in the early 30s. I wonder, David, if you could talk a little bit about what you know about Howard Hughes and his kind of role in movie making as a whole. Uh, so I don't know a tremendous amount about him. Uh, I think the kind of the main story of him is first in the production of Hell's Angels, which was a uh, 1930 film, a war film that he did and was kind of kind of had an infamous production from what I understand, uh, just because of his kind of obsessive nature and demanding like lots of takes and kind of dangerous stunts, kind of what you would expect from an industrialist of this time. And I guess aside from that, he also ran RKO uh, for a period and essentially ran it into the ground. Um, For people who might not know, e.g. myself, uh, what is RKO Pictures? Uh, So that was a very famous uh, studio that did a ton of films. They did did a bunch of Orson Welles' stuff, most famously Citizen Kane, I believe, was an RKO. And they were also the the distributor of Disney Films. So for a a long time, Disney Films had the, like, RKO logo at the beginning. Does RKO not stand for anything in particular? Uh, What is it? Radio? Oh, Radio, Radio Keith Orpheum. There you go. Is what it stands for. Mm. Okay. Do you feel like in the movies he was involved with, Hughes might have kind of um, overshadowed the directors he worked with? Uh, almost certainly. I think this is this is something that happens a lot. I know we've talked about um, previously with Harvey Weinstein, who was kind of that type of producer as well, uh, who was was very forceful in his creative control of films. Um, this is also the case for anyone who's familiar with um, with Hong Kong films. The producer, director, screenwriter Choi Hark um, has produced like a ton of different movies. And for for many of those, it's kind of speculated that he was a key creative force. Uh, that being said, here because it was Howard Hawks directing, I'm not I'm not as sure how much control Hughes would have had because Hawks is uh, uh, very much a, a name in his own right. So let's go ahead and talk about Howard Hawks. Um, I saw him referred to as the greatest American director who is not a household name. Um, he was chosen by Howard Hughes, even though they had had kind of a rocky relationship before. Apparently, Hughes had sued him over alleged plagiarism. Um, but I guess they kissed and made up in order to make this movie. Howard Hawks uh, directed a ton of movies. And, uh, some of the big ones are Bringing Up Baby, The Big Sleep, Gen- Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, Rio Bravo, among many, many others. I wonder, David, which of his works are you familiar with or you particularly like, or if you can kind of talk about him in any way. Uh, so The Big Sleep is is great. That's very much a seminal film noir. Uh, I highly recommend um, with the... The famous portrayal of Philip Marlowe by Humphrey Bogart, um, and that's uh, that's based on a Raymond Chandler, I think. So I saw that one, and I, I've also seen Rio Bravo, and I think that's an especially interesting 
picture because of its relationship to High Noon, which was a movie made famously during the McCarthy period, during the McCarthy era. And so High Noon was basically about this idea. The The basic plot was the sheriff who's in a town and this criminal that he had put away several years prior has gotten out of jail and is coming to kill him. And so the sheriff is trying to rally up the town uh, to try and pose some kind of defense against this criminal. The townspeople kind of don't want anything to do with it and variously like ignore him or abandon him. And the sheriff is able to defeat the criminal with the help of, I believe, his wife in the picture. And he leaves town. All the, um, I should say, all the villagers come out once he has defeated the criminal as kind of a like, oh, you know, they're excited that he was victorious. And the sheriff leaves the town in disgust, which I think is not, not an especially subtle allusion to the Red Scare and blacklisting, right? And this idea that uh, uh, creative types in Hollywood who may have been to greater or lesser degrees abandoned by their colleagues. And so Rio Bravo was a film made in response to that with uh, with noted extreme conservative John Wayne. And the entire idea was to reframe that story, but have the sheriff character be, you know, a tough guy, kind of have these super tough conservative like Western gunslingers who take care of the problem, right? So very, very much introducing the idea of machismo and and uh, the, the power of independence in the individual as opposed to like kind of the betrayal by the collective. Um, so I think that's, that's kind of one of the more political Howard Hawks films. And uh, I don't know that much about him personally, but I would venture a guess to say he was a pretty, pretty conservative guy. Well, this would be, in normal circumstances, a movie where I would want to talk about the actors. But since our theme this month is censorship, and there is so much to talk about in terms of censorship with regard to this movie, um, that's what we're going to talk about now. Um, So if you watch this movie, it'll be pretty obvious, at least some of the things that censors at the time would have uh, taken issue with. Um, First of all, obviously, violence. There's a lot of shooting, and I mean, it's not graphic, but there's dead people all over the place. There's also the theme of incest, which was stronger in the novel, but it was kind of hinted at in the movie, especially before they cut some scenes, and that would be between um, uh, Cheska and Tony. And then also other issues would be a sympathetic view of gangsters and also the portrayal of corruption in the police and in the government. So we're going to get into that in more detail. But I want to... So apparently this movie is pretty loosely based on the novel, but I wanted to point out some significant alterations from the novel. In the book, Tony was made to appear pretty clever and pretty sympathetic, but in the movie, if you watch him, he doesn't He doesn't really seem that smart. Um, and he seems very kind of crude, just super, super basic, like a, almost like a stereotypical gangster, I think. And also in the novel, Tony was the brother of a police officer and they scrubbed that plot element out of the movie. I'm sure they knew that that was going to be too controversial. On the on the point of Tony kind of being 
being made dumber, I suppose, in the film, did that have anything to do with with perhaps portraying uh, since the character is so is so clearly based on Capone, was the film or the novel more accurate? Because I think what I've kind of heard my entire life was that Capone was not an especially cunning guy. I I don't really know the answer to that. Um, I just know that in the in the book they made him seem pretty smart. So perhaps the book took some liberties, but from what I read, the changes in the movie were. I mean, maybe maybe it was both things. Maybe they're like, this is more like Capone, and also let's not make gangsters look too good, right? Right. Um, so if you watch the movie, at the beginning, there's this prologue. I think it's uh, maybe three frames, and I'm going to read it to you because I took pictures. And it's kind of the weirdest thing to see at the beginning of a movie. But it read... This picture is an indictment of gang rule in America and of the callous indifference of the government to this constantly increasing menace to our safety and our liberty. Every incident in this picture is the reproduction of an actual occurrence, and the purpose of this picture is to demand of the government, what are you going to do about it? The government is your government. What are you going to do about it? So it almost makes it seem like what you're going to watch is kind of a PSA. But that was something that was added because of pressure by the censors. Kind of in the middle of the movie, there was also this kind of preachy government scene where you have these characters who I don't think you see anywhere else in the movie. But they're um, people in some sort of positions of authority in government talking about how they're going to deal with gangsters, right? And it uh, to me, David, I don't know if you felt this way. When I was watching the movie, I was like, what is this for? <laughs> Especially because they, they never came back to it. But evidently that was something that that they added to please the censors. Oh, it's, uh, yeah, it's super jarring. I think anyone who's seen the film uh, will know exactly the scene we're talking about. Um, and it, it very much does feel like it, it's been thrown in the middle, right? There's not, they made no attempt to kind of fuse it organically with the rest of the piece. No, totally. It's almost like you wonder if they were like, maybe our audience will be smart enough to realize we had to put this here. I don't know. <laughs> I think that's probably a pretty good guess. Mm-hmm. Okay, so some things that were changed was that um, originally in the movie, Tony's mother, who who is this um, Italian immigrant, and, and she and Tony and Cheska live in the same house together. She was portrayed originally of being very supportive of Tony and even being on the receiving end of a lot of benefits because of his life of crime, but they changed that. Um, there was also a portrayal of a corrupt politician, and they took that out. Okay. And then the ending. So there, there were actually three endings to this movie, believe it or not. Originally, the way they were going to do it was Tony's in the house with his sister. His sister gets killed. And then originally how they were going to have it is that I think the police try to gas him out. And then the police start shooting at him. But he kind of miraculously doesn't get hit for a really long time. Um, So he looks almost kind of superhuman. And then when they finally do hit him and he goes down, he has like a gun in his hand that he's pulling the trigger of, but it's out of um, ammunition. And so you're just hearing like this click over and over and over again as he's going down. So he looks kind of really heroic and superhuman. 
And they wound up not making that ending because that was good. It just made gangsters look too good. So then the second ending that they that they came up with and that they actually shot is the one that you see in this movie if you watch it today. And in that ending, uh, he gets gassed out of the house, surrenders, and then tries to make a break for it. And they shoot him and he dies on the sidewalk. And that's the end. That was controversial. So they had to reshoot this scene. And by the time they knew that they were going to have to do that, Paul Mooney, who um, played Tony, was already off on Broadway working on another project. So they actually had to kind of um, finagle it with a with a body double. And they filmed it to where at the ending you see Tony being tried and sent to execution. And I just really wonder how they managed that with a body double, but they did. We're going to get to it later, um, but they wound up not having to use that ending anyway, and they settled on the second one. Um, So if anyone's ever seen the last filmed Bruce Lee picture, uh, Game of Death, that's a pretty bizarre use of, like, a combination of body doubles and, like, cutouts, and it's really, it's pretty bizarre. So, I, I don't know. If you've seen that, that's probably a pretty good indication of what this alternate um ending might have looked like a lot of a lot of times those things don't turn out well oh why did they use a body double in that case uh because bruce lee had died okay i I figured that was why oh man this is also something it's kind of kind of a joke within contemporary film production the uh like we'll fix it in post uh the (laughs) idea that editing has gotten so much more sophisticated and with the advent of like cgi right and all these new techniques there's kind of a tendency to be lazier in production Mm -hmm. um and so sometimes like that can cause certain problems uh people may have seen on reddit uh or or any of these other social media places there's an infamous shot from i think the last season of the office where one of the characters is supposed to be standing in front of a yard but she's very clearly green screened in because it seems like they were trying to put it together and didn't have the necessary shot and couldn't get the location again and kind of had to, you know, Frankenstein it together. Um, So this isn't, I, I guess I should say it's a very different time period, but this isn't uh, extraordinary. The idea that you would need a shot that you didn't have for whatever reason. They wound up having to cut a lot of scenes. A couple of the examples of scenes that were cut and were never put back in. In the scene where Tony kind of chases Cheska home from the club because he's upset, when we see them at the family home, he he rips her dress, which made it into the movie, which was kind of surprising. Um, but then the scene that was cut was they they had like an embrace afterwards. And I saw that there were two interpretations of why the censors insisted they cut this. One was that um, this is just looking way too incestuous and, yeah, you got to get rid of that. Uh, The second was that um, this was maybe one of the few portrayals in the movie of Tony as a – of Tony's humanity, right? Because most – the only kind of, I guess, sincere emotional attachment you see him having in the movie is to his sister. I'm sorry. It's just like, what a character that it's like the incest scene makes him too human. What? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, well, I'm just surprised they didn't cut him like 
tearing her dress because I was kind of shocked by that. I was like, what? <laughs> um, another scene that got got cut was there was or a couple of scenes um and these it's pretty clear it has to do with gangsters kind of just in enjoying the spoils of their crimes um there was a yacht scene and then there was another scene where tony gifts his mother a lamp and it was apparently like a really expensive lamp like a thousand dollar lamp in 19- 1920s money I'd be curious to see what kind of lamp that kind of money buys <laughs> um but um, but that that kind of stuff all got cut we never saw it again Another concession to the censors was actually the name of the film. So, of course, they wanted to just call it Scarface. Um, But the censors were like, no, you have to, like, you have to name it something that makes it clear that it's gangsters. And you really don't, it's a really bad thing. And I don't even recall what the examples were that they gave of what, what they could rename it to. But they wound up compromising on Scarface, the shame of the nation, or Scarface, the shame of a nation, which you see it referred to as sometimes. Um, Although normally you still see it referred to as only Scarface if you go looking for it today. Even after all of this back and forth and all of these changes, the New York censorship board banned the film. Um, New York's obviously a big significant market. Howard Hughes was not happy and he issued a statement to the press and he alleged that there were political moment, uh, political motives behind all this censorship. And he kind of used this uh, oratory sleight of hand where he said, oh, you know, law enforcement really likes this movie. Um, they really think it shows the problems with gangs. And he also said that people seeing the movie would help compel action against gangs in real life. So I don't really think he necessarily believed that or cared about that, but that's kind of what he said to drum up support. And with this statement, he did get public support and support from the press because people thought that the the, the censorship board was basically quashing um, his freedom of speech. After that statement... Hughes restored the original ending, and by original ending, I mean the second ending that I talked about earlier that you wind up seeing, Um, and some of the cut scenes were put back in, Um, and then they went ahead and showed the movie in markets where it had been okayed, Um, and then they filed lawsuits in other places um, in order to get it shown in those places like New York, and they won. Um, And also a lot of these other, the markets where it had been banned, they saw how successful the movie was in the markets that it was showing in. And I think that kind of um, uh, increased the pressure on them to okay the movie. So in the end, it was successful. But I don't know if you agree with this. I kind of feel like Howard Hughes and Howard Hawks had both said that they wanted the film to be kind of a tragic comedy, but... Even with all the back and forth of the censorship, to me, it wound up sounding like very moralistic messaging in the end product. And I wonder what you thought the movie either gained or lost by this kind of mix of acquiescing to or defying the censors. I don't really know that this would be as interesting or important of a film if it hadn't had this kind of run in with the censors and had the appended subtitle, the um, the randomly inserted scene, because I think if you take those things away, if you take away the elements of the film that were created through pressure from censorship boards, uh, I think you have kind of like a stylish 
gangster picture and that's kind of it. And uh, with those elements and with the kind of compromises they had to make and like the, the opening inner titles and everything, uh, you have this really interesting development of this film that is kind of simultaneously wagging its finger at you about how, you know, the evils of violence and violence is so bad and then spends an hour and a half titillating you with the violence, right? Spends mm-hmm. so much time kind of bathing itself in it and, it, you know, constructing jokes around this stuff. So I think, I don't know that I would necessarily agree that it it became just a moral picture, like you said earlier, a PSA. I think it became this weird hodgepodge of tragic comedy and PSA that makes it like this weird contradictory mess that I think is what really makes it an interesting film to watch now. Do you think the movie benefited in any way from the censorship? Do you think it benefited in an artist in an artistic sense at all? Not just in the well, the censorship kind of made it interesting to watch, kind of meta perspective. Okay, so this is kind of the situation with figures like Howard Hughes or um if anybody's familiar, Herschel Gordon Lewis, uh, who got really famous for doing a bunch of like kind of gore heavy horror films uh in the 60s but i think this kind of production is very much built on the idea of entertainment i i don't think that that makes it so that like films like this aren't art i think they kind of de facto are but it's it becomes more difficult to talk about them in that context when so clearly so much of the creative force behind them was focused on, again, the the titillation, right? Like, I don't know how interested Howard Hughes or Howard Hawks were in kind of the element of Tony's humanity, right? Like, what what's kind of his, uh, his motivation? Why does he behave this way? I don't know that that was really a big focal point so much as I, I think the focus was on, like, oh, we have this great, shot of Boris Karloff uh, getting killed in a bowling alley and they mark uh, the strike, the X on the paper, you know, that's great. That's fun. And so again, I think they're making this with the idea of entertainment. So to a certain degree, I don't know how much we can really dig into this or how much we can say that like censorship affected it as art one way or the other. So do you think that something being entertaining is totally divorced from it being artistic? Because I distinctly remember when we were talking about Ocean's Eleven and we were talking about the 2001 remake, you mentioned how Soderbergh kind of approached it as a challenge to make a movie that was kind of perfectly entertaining to the audience. Well, so I I don't think like uh, the entertainment element of film and the art element of film are necessarily separate. But I do think that when you have, again, creators or directors, producers who are setting down and saying explicitly that we are explicitly going to make entertainment, I think it becomes more difficult to discuss like your earlier question about the artistic impact of, of censorship on it. Because I think in some ways, the bigger part of this piece uh, and kind of the the more interesting element of this piece is the story of censorship, right? It's hard to say exactly because we don't have that film, like what 
what this would be like without any censorship. But I think this is, I mean, maybe it is improved. Uh, Cause I know people talk about that a lot. The idea that like a degree of restriction improves your piece. I know um, the director of don't look now, Nicholas rogue um, uh, film we've covered previously. He had a, a statement about how kind of having too much as a director is bad artistically. And then also not having enough is bad artistically. So I guess maybe maybe that's kind of my answer is that like to a certain degree, maybe the censorship did impact this positively. Yeah, kind of like I, I heard it. I hear it talked about uh, a lot with uh, budgets, right? If you have too much money, it's not good for your movie or even um, this is an odd thing to talk about. But I was I've heard because I'm not a fan, but I've heard this reference before. Howard Stern, how he's funnier um, when he's on the radio because he has to censor himself. So he can't just say whatever, you know, comes to mind. I guess at this point, I kind of wanted to zoom out a little bit and talk about gangster films in general. They get characterized by their critics um, and even by their fans a little bit as being very just gratuitous. But I wonder whether you, to what extent you think they are gratuitous and to what extent you think they can be either innovative or interesting and whether you have any examples in either direction. I'm a big fan of gangster movies uh, and kind of like hashtag guy movies, right? Um, not to say that only men can enjoy these films, but that's kind of the, uh, the, the stereotype, the baggage that they carry with them. So I got into them mostly through Scorsese's work. So primarily with um, Goodfellas and also Casino, although not, uh, not as good as Goodfellas. I, I'm really into that movie. And I think you're right that, like, there's kind of always this discourse about what is really the purpose of making these things. They're pretty much always about people who do terrible things and constantly do them and usually end with people, you know, the protagonists, the gangster protagonists suffering in one way or the other for their deeds. And I think it, you know, it really... Gosh, it really depends. I think the reason I like Scorsese's work so much, um, as well as um, the the film Heat by Michael Mann, I think is a really good example of this. Coincidentally, not that long ago, I, I finally finished watching the entirety of um, The Sopranos, uh, the David Chase HBO show. Uh, and I think where, where these films really shine or television series as is applicable is in their their dedication to development of character, right? So a lot of times we talk about them in terms of just being about violence, which in some ways is kind of the film we're talking about today, Scarface. The protagonist kind of is the violence. This is the main reason that this movie is made, that we're watching it. But I think a lot of the later gangster films become much more about personalities and... Uh, different, again, different characters who wind up getting really, really well developed. So we have a situation where it's almost like the, the gangster movie is made because we know people enjoy gangster movies. And then within that, we can craft this really complex 
uh, personal drama involving a bunch of different characters with uh, with kind of different goals clashing together. I read something that was of interest to Howard Hughes and Howard Hawks was how gangsters have that contrast between being very kind of polished on one circumstance in one situation and then turning around and being super violent uh, and grotesque. That aspect might have been a little bit lost in this film just because of the censorship and how Paul Mooney's character was made out to be just kind of... He, he's always, from the beginning, seen as a social climber. But, but evidently, that contrast was something that the filmmakers were interested in. Something else I kind of wanted to bring up was I think a lot of times gangster movies get criticized because they characterize or they kind of paint whole ethnic groups with a single brush. Um, And I think that criticism can hold more or less water depending on the, the period when the movie came out and the kind of social political context of the time. But when this movie came out in 1932, I was just looking at kind of the cast and the people involved in this movie. And even though um, it's portraying Italian Americans and Irish Americans to a lesser extent, there aren't any Italian Americans that I can see in, in significant roles in this movie. Um, and I know that the Italian-American community kind of came out against it when it came out because it doesn't make Italians look very good. I, I think with respect to Italians, that has somewhat subsided over the years because they're not really an ethnic group who is discriminated against within the U.S. anymore. So, Right. They've been to a greater or lesser degree inducted into whiteness right so by the time like the godfather came out in the 70s you had italian americans playing roles in that anyway i just thought i'd kind of bring that up as an issue and i don't know do you have any thoughts about that oh well i mean i think your your example of the godfather is um is super good because i think that's a marker of some of the later uh gangster films at least um from again from the italian american perspective because we started getting these films that were made by italians and you know again francis ford coppola with the godfather and martin scorsese with goodfellas and so it was less of this kind of like outsider depiction of like oh this criminal culture of italians within this country who are you know running crazy they were actually able to talk about some of this not obviously these you know coppola and and scorsese were not uh personally involved in gangsterism but they were italian and so they could speak to that like cultural element which uh, complicated the kind of stereotypes that had been established in the gen- in the genre prior to that by non-Italian filmmakers and actors. Mm-hmm. And by that point, Italians had, as you said, more or less been kind of absorbed into whiteness in America. So, well, I uh, I guess in the seventies more so than they were in the thirties, but I think there was still. It, it wouldn't probably be until kind of the 80s and 90s that, you know, like kind of the further away we got from, this is an odd comparison, but from kind of the, the Kennedy campaign, I think the more 
Italians were accepted into whiteness. Uh, Kennedy was not Italian, but there was a lot of skepticism over him being president because he was Catholic, which is something that was uh, very heavily associated with Italian communities in the United States. And so I think after that point, that kind of led more slowly into Italians, um, again, being inducted into whiteness. And also, um, you know, by the 70s, the the rate of Italian immigration to the U.S. to the U.S. had fallen to the point where, you know, the Italian Americans you saw in the U.S. were um, very often they didn't speak Italian anymore. Right. Um, And I think people like Scorsese by that point. Um, maybe it was interesting to them to be able to mine their culture and kind of associate themselves with uh, gangsterism as something that was cool or that had interesting aspects rather than something that was just made you look like a bad person on the basis of your ethnicity. Right. Um, I I will say just as as kind of um, an asterisk on this conversation, uh, you and I are not Italian. And also, you know, Italian groups uh, within the U.S. have um, complained about kind of the depiction of Italians as gangsters, even, you know, more recently since. Yeah, more with the uh, like the Godfather, there were there were a lot of kind of protests over that. um, And Scorsese's work also has been criticized by Italian groups as well as Catholic groups. So it's not not necessarily a done deal. But I I think your point uh, is salient. Well, like to be like to be very transparent, we make like joking Italian accents and we talk about like the Mario brothers. I don't like in 2020, I don't really feel like this is an issue. I feel like we're, we're at a state where um, people like, it's going to be different maybe if you're a boomer or older, but if you're younger Italian, maybe Italian surnames even just register as just like another white surname, just as much as Eastern European surnames or, you know, English surnames or whatever, French surnames, whatever the case may be. Right. Um, I do, I guess just to bring, bring this out a little bit further as well. uh, I do want to mention that this, this also can be different depending on the part of the United States that you live in. Um, because mm-hmm. for example, example, if you're, if you're kind of in the Chicago area, which is still uh, very heavily segregated, um, not just in terms of uh, white people and black people and brown people, but also in terms of particular ethnic groups, right? There's segregation where, where there are areas where there's a much heavier uh, Polish population. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that can, that can play into it as well. Right. And like more broadly, also, this is the in within the context of immigration patterns to the United States it can be totally different depending on where else on in the world you are. Sure. So here here's something that's very reflective of my this was the first time that I saw the movie and I kind of got into a headspace that I get to with some films where there's so much shooting going on that I start to have trouble figuring out who's shooting who and why. And then the gunfire just becomes super monotonous um, to the point where I kind of stop paying attention. I just get lost in the violence. And I have that happen with movies, not only 
gangster movies maybe, but a lot of action movies, superhero movies where they're like zipping and zapping each other and I there'll be like a 20 minute fight scene and I'm in the middle of it and I'm like going over my grocery list in my head because I'm just <laughs> kind of checked out. And I kind of got that a little bit in this movie. And I wondered if you ever experienced the same thing where kind of continual violence makes you space out or whether there's any other kinds of material in movies that kind of make you stop paying attention. So I think I, I felt that that was a big part of the reason I remembered this as being such a, a such a kind of monotonous, boring film. I think my first viewing, I felt that pretty strongly. This time around, I think I had a better... I was able to keep up with the specific characters a little bit better. And even there are some jokes... I can't remember the name of the character, but kind of... Um, uh, Tony's sidekick, he keeps referring to him as his secretary. Um, there are a lot oh, of jokes. Right. Uh, <laughs> there are a lot of jokes about him not being able to receive phone calls and take down like basic information like someone's name. And during one shootout sequence, he's like on the phone and he can't keep track of it because there's so much gunfire. Uh, and I think the first time I watched this, I totally, like I was, like you had said, zoned out. So I totally missed that joke. So that wasn't really the case for me here. The one movie I really recall it being a problem with was, um, I believe it came out in 2009. Uh, Michael Mann did a film called Public Enemies, uh, which is not related to the James Cagney film Public Enemy. Uh, from 1930. So the the Michael Mann film was about Dillinger and kind of the the hunt for him. And I remember going to see that in theaters and Michael Mann, who is a big proponent, um, who has been a big proponent of shooting on digital cameras for a long time, far before they were kind of accepted by a lot of um, especially independent studios as being a financially sound way of shooting film. And so at this period, they were not as high, highly developed technologically as they are now. And digital cameras, one of the bigger problems they had was performing well in low light situations. So that's a problem that film cameras had also. Uh, but with digital cameras, a lot of the times, if something is like too dark, it's hard to see anything at all. Like it's, you just don't pick up in anything. You have a hard time distinguishing individual characters and so in the Michael Mann film, you're just watching this half-hour shootout between white guys in suits and other white guys in suits <laughs> in, like, a farmhouse in the woods. And, like, I could, I, I totally zoned out for that film. So I guess it, it, it varies, uh, but I, I think your point is an important one in that, like, violence in and of itself is not necessarily exciting, uh, or or even attention grabbing, right? Right. It you'll have explosions and all kinds of stuff going on, and you could be totally losing your audience, right? Sure. Mm. Um, I do think we come back to this pretty frequently with black and white films. Um, I, I think a contributing factor for me in this movie is that the black and white makes it even harder to distinguish faces. And, and, and like the car chase and a lot of the, you know, when they're kind of raiding the north side, a lot of that is going on at night. So it makes it even harder to see. Um, well, so that's a that's a thing. 
Um, the next thing I wanted to talk about is how you think this movie compares to the 1983 remake, which I think is much better known, of course. Um, it's also called Scarface and stars Al Pacino, and I haven't seen it. And I wonder how you would kind of compare the two. So I watched this movie and was pleasantly surprised, and I decided to watch the remake before um, uh, before we had this conversation because that was another film that I saw, I think, around the same time, and I really hated it the first time, and this time I maybe hated it more. Oh, um, wow. So, uh, and this is, this is kind of, this will be kind of an interesting pairing of our previous discussion about, um, like the depiction of Italians within films, the remake of Scarface, uh, for all intents and purposes, it's essentially the same plot, but with a lot of material added in between. So maybe the first 45 minutes is kind of like the rise of Scarface, right? Uh, Tony kind of coming into the criminal underworld. Um, and then we have a really kind of extended fall. Whereas in the, the original, this film, it, it's a much, uh, a kind of a much more brief, sharp, like plot point to plot point to plot point really doesn't burn any time. And, Gosh, it's hard because I think we would need we would need an entire episode to talk about all the things I have problems with with the remake. Number one, I don't I'm not a big Brian De Palma fan, so this is already like I'm biased in that way. Uh, but number two, in updating this story, the screenwriter Oliver Stone, um, known for Platoon and Born on the Fourth of July, and um, uh, also known for Natural Born Killers, so he decided to resituate the film in Miami in the '80s, and he decided to, as opposed to making Tony Italian, he decided to make him Cuban, played by Al Pacino, which I think is, you know, the beginning of the problems with this film. Like, it's, there are a lot of reasons why it's inappropriate to have an Italian playing a Cuban in a major motion picture, uh, all the more so back in 1983. But that film, I think very deliberately, whereas in the original, I think the the political context of Italians being stereotyped as as gangsters was kind of just a result of perhaps Hughes and and Hawks's bigotry uh, on top of being based on the life of Al Capone, right? So I don't think there was necessarily a concerted effort to attack Italians, but I think it was this idea that like, well, Italians are gangsters and this is what they do. The remake uh, had much more focus specifically on the politics of U.S.-Cuban relations within the 80s. So Tony... Uh, as I said before, this talks about his kind of uh, his elaborate rise and fall. They specifically emphasize that Tony came over as part of the Mariel Boatlift, which uh, just kind of a, a super brief bit of history. This was a moment in which there were a lot of Cubans who were really dissatisfied with Castro and the economy and Castro allowed uh, people to leave. And so there were a large group that came en masse. So Tony is depicted as being one of these immigrants and the opening title cards are some of the most hateful things I've ever read in my entire life. I don't know. Um, because it, it specifically speaks to uh, uh, something to the effect of like 125,000 refugees came, 25,000 with criminal records, right? Ooh. So we are we already <laughs> set up, right? <laughs> it's it's very very bad. And again, to kind of to kind of keep this brief, because the subject is not the remake. 
I just want to say that it's in some ways it's very similar to the original in that the remake is this weird, confused piece that simultaneously wants to be a critique of capitalism while also being this hyper hateful, like quasi imperialistic screed about the dangers of like allowing Cubans into the United States. So, yeah, I mean, I, I guess that that would be kind of the main difference. A lot of the general plot points stay the same, uh, but that political overtone is added. Also, the um, the kind of the incestuous nature of his relationship with his sister is um, kind of made much more much more clear. Oh, gross. Okay. It's pretty. <laughs> like, I don't, I know there's, I've said there's, I just, I, I can't recommend it anyway. <laughs> so this is also kind of on a tangent, but I was thinking about this non-ethnically correct casting. As I mentioned, in the original Scarface, you don't have any Italian-Americans, as far as I can see, in major roles. Oh, actually, who's this? I'm looking at the cast right now. The The lady who played Tony's mother was actually Italian-American. But I think as far as like major characters, that might be it. Okay, and then you mentioned that in the in the remake, you have Al Pacino as a Cuban-American. And I was just thinking about how, um, and I think you saw it, but I didn't. There was that television series a couple years ago about um, Gianni Versace, right? Uh, yeah, I did see that. Yeah, and that one, there was some controversy because, of course, it was about Gianni Versace and his family who are Italian, but then the cast was mostly Latino. There, Okay, so Gianni Versace was played by... Um, and I'm sorry, I'm not really familiar with a lot of these actors, but he, a Venezuelan actor. Um, and then, uh, we had like Ricky Martin and Penelope Cruz in there who are, uh, Puerto Rican and Spanish respectively. And I remember reading that there was a lot of controversy about having Latinos in these Italian roles. Um, I don't know, just something to think about. I also think about how um, in the kind of, I guess, 30s and 40s, you had a lot of Jewish American actors who were playing roles like this. So like Paul Mooney, um, he he was, I believe he was born in um, Austria, Hungary and immigrated and he was Jewish American and he played Tony. There's a lot to think about there. Oh, sure. And kind of just to pair that with a remake briefly, everyone, I think everyone thinks of Al Pacino as you know, Cuban Tony uh, Montana, but that, that's kind of not the limit of this bizarre casting. So F. Murray Abraham um, also plays a Cuban, uh, as well as Robert Loja, which if anyone's familiar with Robert Loja, that is that is confounding that they would cast that man as Cuban. I, I it, it is inexplicable to me. Who? What, I don't know him. What? What's his deal? Have you seen Big? Oh, maybe, but it was a long time ago if I did. Uh, well, if you happen to remember, he was, I think, the department store owner who dances on the piano with Tom Tom Hanks. But he's, I think he's he's most famous for having this, like, very, very gruff, like, old white guy persona. Oh. Um, and, and, like, a, a New York accent. So, I don't know. It's strange to see him play a uh, Cuban Floridian. <laughs> All right. Well, to be fair, there are apparently a lot of New Yorker transplants in Florida. 
but they're not Cuban. (laughs) (laughs) True. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I guess the last thing that I kind of wanted to talk about was I w- so one of my sources here, uh, Tony Thomas, and I'll talk about my sources at the end, of course, he posits that Scarface 1932 is less dated, feels less dated than other 30s gangster flicks. And I wondered whether you would agree with that. And also just what are your kind of final thoughts today? So I haven't actually seen very many 30s gangster flicks. I've basically only seen this and Public Enemy, uh, the James Cagney film. So I don't, I guess I'm not really sure where exactly he's getting that. Because what what I remember of Public Enemy, I think it's probably about as dated as this film. Although... I guess when I was watching this, kind of something I kept thinking about was how similar this was to a Tony Scott film. Um, So if you're familiar with uh, the director, Tony Scott, who is, um, he's uh, since passed, but uh, who was the brother of Ridley Scott, he was really famous for making very over-the-top stylish films, a lot of times having to do with violence, right? So he he directed... um, uh, Man on Fire, which was kind of uh, kind of a surprisingly big film recently with Denzel Washington, and if you've seen that, you'll kind of you'll know what I'm talking about. He does uh, an interesting, like stylized use of subtitles and uh, uses a ton of really quick cuts and 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 color. Is uh, his color palette's kind of all over the place. Um, anyway, so I, I kept thinking of him because this film in a lot of ways really emphasized its style again the the motif of placing x's near characters who were going to die um the recreation of the i think it was a valentine's day massacre where the the people are lined up and so we start off the shot with a shot of um these these kind of like wood x's on the ceiling and there's a shadow of a bunch of men lined up in a in a row then we pan down uh we tilt down rather and they all get shot and then we tilt back up to the x's uh so again these choices that are really focusing on being stylish being memorable and so perhaps in that way it does feel more modern than other pieces uh other contemporary films that didn't necessarily have that that kind of uh, uh, extravagant visual design. I guess uh, just in general, kind of final thoughts on this film. I, I think it's definitely worth a watch. I do think you get a lot more out of it, viewing it, kind of knowing some of the context of its production and the, the censorship. And it, in some ways, it's, it's, uh, it's similar to our film from last week, Man with a Golden Arm, in the sense that like the film the film itself is good but the story around it is really what kind of keeps it fresh in your mind which what makes it more of a remarkable moment i got to say that i my exposure to gangster films is not that great i kind of feel like my experience with this film was pretty similar to my other experiences with gangster films um i have seen the godfather which was it's been a while but that that was excellent um, and then I saw, what was that movie that came out, I want to say, 10, 15 years ago? Uh, the Gangsters Were Russian, which, y- you know, it's kind of funny that the, ethnic- the ethnicity sticks in your head. 
um, which is why these moves might be prob- these movies might be a little bit problematic. But um, Naomi Watts is like half Russian in that movie. What was it? Eastern Promises, uh, a remarkable David Cronenberg film. Okay, yeah, um, I remember. I was I, I think I was kind of meh about that. Um, but 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 the general feeling is kind of the same for me for all of these. And I wonder too, thinking back to what we talk about a lot, how would your experience be different? If you saw this movie at the time when it was released, when it might have been a newer experience, although we did talk about how there were a whole bunch of 30s gangster movies. Um, so I don't know. Yeah, it's it, at least it's short. <laughs> <laughs> a ringing endorsement. <laughs> uh, real quick before we wrap up, I just do want to mention um, a couple of things outside of the story or um, outside of the censorship history of the film i thought the performances were all really great uh i think paul mooney was phenomenal in this uh as just this absolute like scene chewing maniacal character he's like it looks like he's having so much fun with the role anna vorshak and karen morley who play uh tony's sister and poppy respectively i think they also did a really great job in kind of um mirroring his energy uh which created some really fun scenes also osgood perkins as uh, uh frank i believe the original uh head honcho gangster who is Anthony Perkins's father of psycho fame. Uh, I think he also did a really good job of playing this kind of weirdly restrained character in the light of, again, like Paul Mooney's like broad approach um, to it. So I think if you, if you kind of appreciate acting, especially acting in, in films from this period, uh, that's a very good reason to watch this film. Um, also Karen Morley, who's poppy her wardrobe was fire um, <laughs> <laughs> and i i know this movie is supposed to take place in the 20s but um older movies I, i've kind of noticed are not really good about backdating their costumes if it's not going that if the film is not going that far back in time so the the clothes definitely look more early 30s um but she looks incredible so that's my final thought um, my sources today are uh, Carlos Clarence. He wrote the book Crime Movies from Griffith to The Godfather and Beyond. And also Tony Thomas, Howard Hughes in Hollywood. And of course, Wikipedia. All these sources are going to be in our show notes. Um, and these books are accessible online if you're curious. Um, if you want to follow us on social media, we are Maybe Today Matinee on Instagram, on Facebook. Mayday Matinee on Twitter, and you can uh, you can search Maybe Today Matinee on Patreon as well. Next week, we'll be finishing up our censorship theme with 1960s Psycho. I'm Monica. I'm David. And this is Maybe Today Matinee. <laughs>